Welcome to Who's the Best, the podcast which discusses, debates and decides the best pop culture icons. I'm your host, Sandro Manetti. Today's question, who's the best <laughs> comedian? From old school nightclub comics to cutting edge insta famous stars, political satirists to punchline and improv experts, blue collar comics to Oxbridge intellectuals, it all comes down to the same thing, going on stage and leaving us laughing. <laughs> There's a long list of possible candidates for Best Comedian. I'll be joined in studio by uh, some very special guests, Greg Proops from Whose Line Is It Anyway? and rising star comedian Emily Hagen. Together we'll assess the qualities of the candidates and at the end of the show we'll announce the public's choice. So let's run through some of the contenders and the comedy history, if you will, of all this. Uh, Eddie Murphy was the first stand-up comic to be a rock star with those leather outfits and outrageous gigs. It was like fans were at a concert or party rather than a stand-up show. Who can forget watching the whirling dervish that was Robin Williams? His shows were all about trying to keep up with him as his brain buzzed from one joke to the next and you never seemed to know what would come out of his mouth next. Then there was Steve Martin with his wild and crazy guy act and the keen intelligence which powered it. Let's not forget the bold, brash and brilliant Joan Rivers, a wonderfully outspoken and prolific comic who's so much missed. Also much missed the thinking man's comic George Carlin with his brainy polemics and Rodney Dangerfield, the eternally downtrodden everyman whose self-deprecating jokes never get old. Kevin Hart now draws some of the biggest stand-up audiences in history, combining his stadium tours with a thriving movie career. Dave Chappelle is right at the top of the game with some great specials and his groundbreaking TV show. And talking of TV shows, uh, Jerry Seinfeld turned his stand-up act into one of the most beloved sitcoms of all time, showcasing his observational comedy powers. Who are these people? Then there's the man Seinfeld called the Picasso of our profession, the comics comic Richard Pryor. Such an inspiration to so many comedians who followed. There's plenty of other great names I haven't even mentioned. So plenty to discuss over the show. Uh, but first, let's welcome my guest. Greg Proops is most famous for his improvisational comedy on both the US and UK versions of Whose Line Is It Anyway? He's also a stand-up comedian, actor, host and podcaster. Welcome, Greg. Thank you, Sandro. And Emily Hagen is a rising star comic who, in between stand-up gigs and hilarious Instagram videos, also, like Greg, acts, hosts and podcasts, but unlike Greg, also works as a Katy Perry impersonator. Welcome, Emily. You know, the rate's been going down as Billie Eilish's Ben rate is increasing. Really? Yeah. Oh. So my rate's gone down. Oh, you just can't find as much work anymore. Oh, as she's, a not Kate, a, she's not Katie as relevant. Um, I'll be asking both their guests about their careers, the, the state of comedy. Uh, Greg, let's start with you. You know, All right, Sandro. What made you want to get into comedy in the first place? There's so many other careers you could have done. Why was comedy calling you? Well, I love that you think there was other careers I had mm -hmm. at my beck and call. <laughs> it was either this or petty criminal, I think. Uh -huh. um, I don't have a lot of skills. I can't type. Um, 
and I wanted to be a show off from an early age. And uh, once I got um, tall enough to uh, be on stage, uh, then it seemed like that's all I really wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And after, you know, once we got to high school and uh, you could have a little more personality and the threat of being whomped wasn't as hard. Uh, well, I, that's a good point, because in, in high school, I developed a skill for comedy to try and save myself from being beaten up. It didn't work. Um, and then instead, I would bribe the captain of the rugby team to be my protector and, <laughs> and, and, and bodyguard. Well Did you use comedy as a survival skill or, or how was school for you? Absolutely. I think when I was, you know, when I was, like I said, I was quite short when I started high school. I think I was like five feet tall. Mm. And I, yes, I sounded like this. And so, uh, and I wear glasses. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a defense mechanism. But also, once you get past that, uh, that initial fight or flight response with comedy, then, then you find out that there's lots, much more there. And I think for me, the moment was, um, I was in a college, in junior college, and uh, we did this afternoon gig with a band called the Boarding House Reach. I remember them. And uh, this was a long time ago, 1978, maybe. And uh, they said, you should come down to this bar we play at and, and do sets in between our sets when we're on break. So, you know, they'd, they'd play for 40 minutes and then take a 20 minute break. And me and my partner, who were wildly unfunny, would uh, get up and do stand up there. And we were teenagers and we were completely underage and we were allowed to drink and smoke and do drugs and all the things that grownups could do. And it was so seductive to me and so exciting that I was like, you don't need to graduate college for this. You don't need to study for this. You just need to be funny. And we weren't making any money, but we didn't care at that point. And so to me, it was being treated like an adult when I was a kid. That was the most appealing thing. And that comedy was the kind of thing that you serve an apprenticeship. You, you do it for a long time and then you get a job. Hmm. You don't have to pass a test. You don't have to go to human resources. You don't have to do a job interview. If you were funny enough and you went to enough open mics, eventually someone offered you a gig for $50. I just, I have the opposite experience. I feel like as a comedian, I'm treated like a kid as an adult. Oh, well, there's that as <laughs> Maybe well. Maybe it's the American version. I don't know. <laughs> and what was your first gig, Emily? And, and why did you go back a second time? Because people have a lot of traumatic experiences. Was it easy for you from the start? Well, I ran the light, obviously, because <laughs> I can't stop talking once I'm up there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, I went back. I, I went like 15 minutes my first set. And they weren't, it wasn't all good 15 minutes, but I felt like I just could I could keep going I got into it though not because I was funny a casting director said you're really honest so that was why like it, nothing about humor at all I went into an audition and they were like you look so beautiful and I'm like no I have a zit right here my hair is greasy and then the casting director took me aside and said have you ever thought about comedy I think you should stop doing commercials for a while and maybe stop being yourself off stage how do you find the courage to get up and there perform? Because you're speaking to someone who retired from stand-up comedy after one gig at the comedy oh, store. Oh, you tried it. Yes, I did. You know, and and finding your comedic voice, you know, is 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 pretty tricky. Stand-up, it was just so terrifying, and it is for a lot of people sort of listening. So you talked about, oh well, we didn't care. Was it was it there was no fear that helped you go up there in the first place? Or well, I mean, I think it almost looks at it at, at it backwards. The people that do it want to do it. I could never be a doctor or a lawyer. I could never be a politician because you have to say yes to too many people and you have to lie all the time. And I think what Emily said was really important. Um, you won't find a lot of people who say the reason they're doing it is because they're too honest. But it is the reason a lot mm -hmm. of us do it. Um, I detest uh, uh, falsehoods and trickery and all that jazz. I don't Me mind too. using my, my verbal skills to uh, dissemble. Uh, that's different. But so stand-up's a real opportunity to be yourself and say what you want to say. It doesn't seem like that when you're first, first starting because you don't know what you want to say yet. You just know you want right. to get up and tell jokes. Mm -hmm. But then after 
they always say seven years, but I don't know who ascribed that to it. I was certainly taught that as a young comic, that it took seven years to find your voice. Well, now that I'm on to 30-something years, um, I found my voice, and I don't give a toss uh, what the audience thinks. Um, I'm pretty confident in my point of view. Uh, it took a long time to develop, and um, the honesty is something that you must never mm-hmm. lose. If you do something that you aren't on stage and you make that your persona, you'll never be able to find your proper persona again. I feel mm-hmm. like to thine own self be true. There's really no other way around it. Lenny Bruce said, I'm not a comic, I'm Lenny Bruce. And Bill Hicks, who was one of my heroes, said, less jokes and more me. Mm-hmm. And I, I think love when, that. when you're really rolling up there, it's not about even the material anymore. It's about them listening to you. And the sway you have is like the sway that a lawyer has over a jury. Emily, picking up on (laughs) on something Greg said there, he says he doesn't give a toss what the audience thinks. Are you at that level of confidence yet? Or do you agonize about what the audience thinks? I feel like when I'm in flow, when it's stream of consciousness and I tap into that, then I don't care at all. And that's when I have my best set. The second I pan the audience and start to pander, that's when I do terribly. I feel exactly the same way and uh, as Emily does. And also, it, that speaks to the point about people being afraid to get up and do it. If you're afraid to get up and do it, you're never going to get up and do yeah. it. And therefore, good, don't. You're, there's, it's a crowded field. We don't need you. Um, <laughs> if you Seriously, uh, I, I'm nervous in regular life. If I have to deal with a, a ma- agents, Me managers, uh, hmm. you know, people, legalities, anything like that, it makes me feel uptight. Give me a microphone and I'm as happy as can be. It's almost like a guard up. The Very much so. Has, it's maybe intimacy issues. I don't know about you, Greg. Maybe for me. Well, comfort on stage <laughs> is, is very important. I remember, um, let me just drop a name here. Jerry Seinfeld yes. once told me that the audience makes up their mind about you in the first five seconds from the way you walk on stage. And it's impossible to change their minds afterwards. So give us like a, a, a technical tip for those who want to do comedy. How do you how do you handle those first five seconds? I just I just realized this was a thing recently because I was going up there and I noticed because I guess I'm attractive. I mean, like I'm a six in L.A., but probably a ten in most other states. <laughs> the US. But I noticed in L.A. I Check would out. Always- Emily uh, Hagen's <laughs> pictures on uh, uh, who's the best website look, details. I, d- yeah, of which I don't later. look like the photos, but you guys won't ever know that because we probably won't ever meet. But I noticed in like some states, I noticed girls would maybe be judging me, and then in LA, since I'm not that hot, I would always be received well right away. So what I've been doing is I go up there right away and disarm myself. So like I'll say, oh, I wanted to have the best outfit in the room, and it's kind of cheesy and hacky, but I'm like, I- I'm going to return this later, and I pull out a tag. Because I usually do return clothes after my sets because I'm not on Greg's level yet where I can't afford (laughs) to look nice all the time. But I noticed that this because I show that I have a tag immediately, the people are like, oh, she's poor. She's one of us. (laughs) Well, those Katy Perry gigs aren't coming in like they used to. The rate is going down and down. But I I don't know. I don't know if I can do this all the time. It's like a new trick because I never want to be hacky. And I usually don't start my sets the same or end them the same. So I notice either doing the tag trick. Something that shows like, oh, my God, I'm vulnerable and self-deprecating. Or I try to connect to the audience immediately because if I can make the connections right away, then they feel like they're on my side. I don't know if that's what how you and how you, do you win? I the audience do. It's an issue for Emily because um, and, and uh, for good looking guys as well. Anyone who's really good looking, it's a little bit of a disadvantage being a stand up comedian because. Hmm. People are super judgmental. It's about worse that. for good-looking guys. Yeah, good-looking yeah. guys have a hard time on stage because people are looking at them like, "Why, why are, are you, you doing that, there, dude? <laughs> like, like, sit down." Like, I think that's why a... I had to retire after one show. Yeah, it makes sense now. Thank I mean, you. With, with me, you don't have to wonder. Uh, 
but it's 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 you know it it never hurts to be funny looking and it never hurts to look funny. I mean, uh, who said it about Groucho? He walked funny, he talked funny, and he looked funny. Mm. And so immediately, mm-hmm. you, you, with two seconds with Groucho, you're like, this is hilarious. Mm-hmm. And you don't ever go back on that. You don't go, oh my God, he's a short Jewish guy with a grease pencil mustache. That never enters into the, <laughs> the, the, the bizarre reality that he set up. So mm-hmm. I can see why you would do that. It's, a lot of gigs on the road, especially in places you're unsure of what the audience is going to be like, are about survival. So it's more mm-hmm. important to get laughs right away, however you can, and then bend them to your will after that. Um, as I said, I don't give a toss. What I really care about is getting what I want to do right. I'm more afraid of getting what I'm doing wrong than I am of their judgment because they're wrong. I've done it a lot and I know I'm hilarious. I so like I don't, <laughs> don't have to. Now, how is the nature of what's funny changing in these more politically correct and perhaps uh, socially responsible and more sensitive times? Have any of you sort of looked at your own material and thought, ah, well, maybe that which might have worked even two years ago, I should maybe sort of draw back. Have you either of you found yourself in that experience? Do you find yourself censoring for the times? I censored a, like a joke the other day, but I think because of the internet, that's the reason that maybe comedy is suffering right now. I don't know if you think it is. I personally do. It's because everybody wants like the quickest joke. So people like a lot of comedians right now on the rise are basically just walking memes. Like that's it's like you could just go on the Internet and find the same meme. And that's what they're saying on stage. So we're not finding I'm not hearing a lot of people talk about their truth and real stories. And then because everyone thinks they're a comedian, everyone has an opinion. So the comment section might as well be a bunch of comedians Mm. because everyone has their opinion on what's right and what's wrong. So even the Chappelle special, which everybody loved. People on the internet went crazy over it. They thought it was just so wrong. Yeah, uh, you're referring to the uh, Netflix special Sticks and Stones, which has uh, divided opinion, but uh, certainly been hugely popular. Uh, and, and Greg, similar question for, for you as someone who exceeds in both improv and stand-up. Have you found yourself sort of checking yourself in in either sort of format? Or like, oh, maybe that's, that's too far? No, um, I've evolved over the years. I used to make fun of... Uh... You know, Britney Spears and Lindsay Lohan and all them when they were, you know, 10 years ago when they were really popular. And I just don't make fun of women anymore. Mm -hmm. I've stopped doing it. And I don't mean like uh, they're not fair game for jokes or whatever. I just feel like there are so many evil white men out there that I have more targets than I could ever dream of. (laughs) And um, that's where my focus is now. Um, I don't think you should punch down. And uh, this whole argument that PC is ruining comedy or whatever, if if you feel hampered really on stage or anything, that's on you. I don't think it's a... Uh, with me, it's a matter of taste and manners. Um, I would never make fun of people that can't punch back. Um, but I think making fun of Nazis and uh, fascists is always good. Um, so that's where I'm coming from. Yeah, I always love a good Nazi fascist joke. I just learned the punch down yeah. theory recently. Yeah. It was mm-hmm. a good lesson to learn. Yeah. Punching mm-hmm. down. Which is... Like you can't make fun of something that doesn't deserve it, or maybe is lesser than you. Like homeless people, or yeah, the disabled. It just makes you look mm. like an, like like mean. Mm. So it's better to punch up. Greg, you uh, lived in uh, England for sort of four years. I did. Um, is there a difference between British and American comedy or British and American audiences? Well, that's a giant general question, but um, yeah, uh, when I lived there in the nineties, the um, the difference was American comics were thought to be real slick. Because we tell jokes and we go set up punchline, tag, 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 set up punchline, tag, 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 story, 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 punchline, tag. And 
British comics are shambly and rambly. They're like all Alan Davis-y, right? Yeah. And uh, I would get up there and go, bang, 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 bang. Here's my jokes. And the English comic would go, I saw one down in the shop the other day. <laughs> I'm going to England. Know, it was, uh, it was, um, <laughs> you know, you get out in the shop and, uh, you know, you get a kebab. And, uh, you know, and, and I would think, you're just rambling. <laughs> and um, I think that's changed. I think English comics have, have the, because of American influence and everything, and they're exposed to the world, um, aren't quite as shambly as they were. Um, British people have a, a funny expectation where if you do a joke and then you tag it, they don't necessarily laugh at all your tags because they feel you've finished mm, um, your punchline. Yeah. So I would have like four or five tags to a joke, like every comic, you're trying to wring every ounce you can out of it. And so by the third tag, they're like, look, we've moved on. <laughs> and it's time for you to move on as well. The main difference I think is there's an utter lack of sentimentality in British crowds. They are not sentimental. They don't care if you liked the MC. They don't want to applaud for their hometown. And they don't care what you do for a living. Whereas American audiences all want to talk about themselves all the time. Uh, hey, it's great so to be here. what do you talk about? Well, <laughs> what else is that? Because <laughs> if you say who's from Cincy, someone's going to go, yeah, Ohio. Gotcha. Whereas if you go in England, is anyone here from Deptford? They're going to go, fuck you, Deptford. <laughs> Tell a joke. Tell a joke. And you, you don't shake hands. I don't like crowd work as much. No. And you don't shake hands with the MC, the compare in England. I hate shaking hands. But, I'm going to England. And you don't say, let's hear it for the compare. Whereas here, you will always say, let's Give hear it, it for your host. Let's yeah. see it for your host. Yeah. I don't and think really, I we English, And in England, sure. they go, yeah. we applauded for that person I don't think already. I've ever said, let's hear it for. Should I start saying that? Yeah. And never beg for love from them. Never do yeah. the cutesy, oh, you like me, don't you? Because they'll go, no, we don't. We just stopped liking you right now. <laughs> When I was growing up in England, I, I, like a lot of people, I fell in love with comedy through the sitcoms written by Carla Lane, shows like Butterflies, Bread and The Liverbirds. And i uh, delighted to announce exclusively on the show that um, the late Carla Lane's granddaughter, um, Irena McGowan, is remaking all her mum's sitcoms in America and, and Britain. And uh, I spoke with her recently and asked why she thinks these very British shows uh, can travel internationally. Uh, here's Arena talking about uh, keeping Carla Lane's work going. I'm currently working on having her scripts redeveloped for the modern audience with lots of encouragement from friends in the industry. I thought we should try to have her legacy live on. I've now found a team in the UK who have the relevant experience and passion for Carla's work. So along with these scripts that are proven to be successful, I've been sifting through piles of writing she left behind. I've found lots of poetry and books and scripts that have not even been published. And in particular, there's one called The Sanctuary, a sitcom set in an animal sanctuary, which is based in the sanctuary she set up with Linda and Paul McCartney. And I asked her the question we're all here to discuss. Who is the best comedian? Who is the best comedian of all time? Now, that's a very difficult question to answer. Hard to pin down, especially because most comedy derives from when it was written. It's cultural and it belongs to its historical context sometimes. Though perhaps the best comedy is that which transcends its time. So I think John Cleese... He was in Monty Python, Faulty Towers, and then A Fish Called Wonder. It's hilarious every time you watch it. He's hilarious every time you watch him. And he has that timeless quality. He's a classic, in my view. 
the greatest of all time, I think. Great choice there in John Cleese. Um, moving into the second half of the show, we're, uh, we're about to discuss who are the best comedians ever. But uh, Greg, John is an example of someone who has had success in multiple genres, you know, doing the, the sketch TV show, uh, doing stand-up, doing sitcoms, doing movies. How does someone find their comedic voice? Um, I think that's a personal matter. That, that To me, it happens all on stage. There's nothing else with the stage. Um, if, if anyone ever asks me, which they do occasionally, um, how do you become a comedian? Um, you spend thousands of hours on stage telling jokes. That's how you do it. That's how you mm-hmm. find your voice. Eventually you'll come to understand what you like to talk about, what you don't like to talk about and what you get bored talking about. Um, I've been, I, certain points in my uh, life where I've done a set and gone, I hate this set more than mm-hmm. life itself. I'm tired of saying it. I'm not going to do it anymore. And then you shake yourself up and do something else. And that's how it happens. Um, also, it's nice if you um, are a fan of art and literature uh, and the world and try to expand your mind a little bit and not just be a dude who, you know, likes dude things because there that's been explored. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we've had quite enough of that, mm-hmm. which is part of where this whole PC backlash thing really rubs me the wrong way is that. When white guys complain they're being curtailed, they have no right to say that whatsoever until they spend 200 years in servitude to other people. But the other thing that's really interesting about what Rena said is uh, John Cleese is deeply English. And that's the kind of thing where people always ask, what's the difference between American English comedy, whatever. Um, uh, Fleabag just won all the Emmys. Mm. I'm on a show that's from England. The most Mm -hmm. famous thing I've ever done is a show that was on the air and for 10 years in England. So there's no... What do, translation, do you think that says? Uh, no, what, what? what do you think that says? It says you've <laughs> got to get over to England early <laughs> fast. No, yes. There's no translation necessary. Yeah. Um, John Cleese, if you watch Faulty Towers now, it's still hysterically funny. He's magnificent in it. It's wildly racist. It is. <laughs> and yes. wildly sexist. Yeah. And um, Monty Python is an indictment of the British class system. The whole joke of every single sketch, other than the absurdity, is always a joke about how rich people are horrible. Mm. And Peter Cook's whole career, with the, continuing with all the surrealism and all the magnificence with Dudley, is absolutely an indictment. Of, he was a rich person who said he spent all of his time in public school trying to avoid being buggered. And I think that informs everything in his comedy. <laughs> well, and that's a very especially in British comedy. It's a very English <laughs> thing. American comics are, tend to be real confident. Yeah. Um, the whole thing about getting beat up and all that, there's that. But my experience is... Uh, you know, Patton Oswalt was like president of his class. I did all the shows at my school. The comics tend to be the stars of their high school, like athletes were the stars of their high school. I was. Right? Yeah. So it, it, we're not the unconfident wimps that get our ass kicked. By the time high school comes around and you're allowed to have a personality, you grab that. And that's mm-hmm. what makes you drive forward as a comic. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think the English comics, class informs almost everything because England is so weighed down by repression and class. The best. Who is your best comedian? Is it a British comic like Billy Connolly or Eddie Izzard? Is it an American great like uh, Chris Rock or Andy Kaufman? Maybe uh, uh, Sarah Silverman, Bill Hicks. There's so many contenders. Greg, give us an appreciation of uh, Eddie Murphy. I mentioned at the start of the show, you know, how in the mid '80s those those stand-up shows were suddenly like rock shows. It mm-hmm. kind of changed comedy in a way, didn't it? I would say so, but I would also argue that Martin and Lewis were absolute rock stars in the '40s. Mm. That they they kind of invented being rock star comics uh, because 
everywhere they went, there was chicks everywhere and they could go out on the balcony and the crowd would scream. And, but yeah, no, Eddie Murphy brought the, that element to it. Also, um, being black and outspoken uh, is a, a, an enormously important addition to comedy. And the biggest movement of comedy now uh, is um, that other races are, are have much more of a voice in comedy and that women are stars. And people get mad at me when I say this because it sounds so simplistic. But I'm telling you, when I started in 1982, name all the female comedy superstars from then. There's four, you know, mm -hmm. and now there aren't. Now there's lots and lots and lots of women that have their own shows, their own movies. The cast of SNL is dominated by the women. You know, mm -hmm. it's that's the that's the best part is that we have Tiffany Haddish now and what we have. Uh, uh, um, Amy Schumer. Well, Amy Schumer. But there wasn't a Mindy Kaling mm -hmm. then. There just wasn't. They weren't allowed in. They would have been pushed out. Mm -hmm. It was too much racism and sexism for it. Oh. I've now in the last year when I play clubs, I won't uh have two male comics open for me. I I say to the club, you have to have two women open for me. Mm -hmm. Oh really? And it's just and I'm not the only guy who does it. I think Nick Swartzen does it. It got to me. Like, you know, it got to me before that, but I didn't do anything about it like all men. And then finally, it just occurred to me, I have the, I have the power because I'm a headliner, to have whoever I want open for me. And it makes the show better for me. It makes the crowd better. It makes the crowd deal with a lot more things than they are ready to deal with. Um, and they're not your competition. Well, well, that's one way of looking at it. sometimes I don't like a woman to go directly in front of me. I like to rotate it. So it's oh, really? boy, girl, boy, girl. Well, I'm all for, uh, I'm all for a diversity as long as it doesn't include white men. <laughs> Now I'm going to ask each of our guests to make the case for who they think is the best comedian. Emily Hagen. Well, like Irene is saying, I agree that a comedian needs to be timeless. And I am going to go with Robin Williams. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just because his manic energy is just so interesting to watch. And I just feel like he was able to do two hours early in his career. Like, I don't know many comedians that can go off book and just be consistently funny. And keep an audience's attention. Also, obviously, his he's just magical. His aura. I don't know if it's because of his mental illness. Of was he bipolar? Oh I, yeah. yeah, he was he right. Was I don't know if yeah. he was yeah. bipolar one or two, but sometimes those personality types do have these like really big magnetic energies about them, and it's just so captivating to watch. And I, it ended so sadly for Robin Williams. I had the pleasure of interviewing him about twenty times, and. He was always on, which That's was hugely frustrating as an interviewer because when you you're writing up this them. interview, you don't want a stand-up routine. You want to get to the heart of things. So when I go beyond the clown and more into the emotions, you know, then he got incredibly dark and you saw how much pain there mm -hmm. was there. So my question for, for both of you is, do you have to have a deep reservoir of pain to really make other people laugh? Well, that's know. a mood killer. Yes. No, well, yeah, there's a buzzkill. Um, I don't know that that's necessarily true. Um, for instance, you brought up Seinfeld. Seinfeld's not coming from any vast yeah. reservoir of pain. He's absolutely observational. He's a Taurus, the unemotional sign. He's he's emotionally unavailable as a comedian, quite frankly. I yeah, think, observational comics don't seem to have to be as heart. emotional. Yeah. 
I was telling Sandra the other day, he asked me if I struggled with depression. And I said, I wasn't depressed until I got into comedy. <laughs> Show business will bum you out. And I actually think when I do best on stage when I'm not depressed. Sometimes mm. it gets like weird. Mm. It's, it becomes too truthful. And then it, a lot of comics right now are using comedy. Well, honesty is your skill, you were saying at the beginning. Yeah, but so. sometimes I think I should maybe not go on stage if I'm having like a really bad day. Yeah. But then it's like you have to push through it and you need those vehicles that help you get through it. Greg, did you meet Robin Williams? I knew Robin pretty well. I'm from San Francisco and uh, I lived there for a long time when he lived there. He was our, um, you know, he was our Elvis. Uh, he, when I was a teenager, he was just when he was breaking into the big, big time. And then because he was such a nice person, he came to all the clubs in San Francisco. So I did improv with him. I watched him do stand up. Um, I did gigs with him a few times where we, it was just the two of us on a mic together. Wow, um, so I had the opportunity to work with him. When he passed, I thought about how much I had spent time with him and how much I loved him. Um, the last time I gigged with him, I was doing a talk show at the San Francisco Sketch Fest, and they asked him if he wanted to do it. I didn't ask him. Someone, an intermediary asked him, and he showed up, and he did the show with me. Mm. And um, he's quite reserved when he first walks into place. He was very, you know, oh, oh, hi. And he called me <laughs> Mr. Proops, which makes me want to burst out crying. Um because he was so nice. Uh, he always called me Mr. Proops my whole time I knew him. And, oh, Mr. Proops, how are you today? And uh, so he came <laughs> in and he was real shy and, and withdrawn. And then I had the first few guests on. And then um, we're standing backstage getting ready to go on. And I go, we're in San Francisco, right? We were at uh, Yoshi's Jazz Joint in San Francisco, which isn't there anymore. And I turned to him and I go, I'm not introducing you to a San Francisco crowd. I said, let's just bum rush the stage. And he goes, oh, oh okay. <laughs> so we just walked on together. And the place went batshit. And then I just threw him softballs, which you don't have to throw him many. Mm -hmm. And he just went off for an hour and a half. And it was glorious. Thank God there, there's no video of it, sadly, but there's pictures. And all of the pictures are me doubled over completely. And him, mm -hmm. because once he had you pinned to the mat, that's when it really got good for him. You know, you like more than the audience. That yeah, yeah. yeah. As soon as I was finished, yeah. he would, then he would pour it on. Like then really mm -hmm. speed up the riffing. Yeah. Was it easy to pick Robin or was was there like a close second choice when you were I making was, your list? Yeah, I kind of wanted to pick Joan Rivers. Oh, Joan. Yeah. Your picks and mine are exactly the same. Really? My three would is have that been, your choice? Yeah, yeah, Joan Rivers and Robin were the first two. And then wow. my favorite is Carlin. And I think the greatest stand-up, if we're just going to talk about stand-up, is mm -hmm. Richard Pryor. Because mm -hmm. Richard Pryor is excoriating on stage mm -hmm. and talks about the unbelievable personal pain of having a mother that was a prostitute mm -hmm. and growing up in a whorehouse in Peoria. And it, if you're able to make, comic. yeah, if you're able to make that funny, you know, bathos and pathos are real hard sells yeah. <laughs> on stage. Nobody likes pathos. Yeah, uh, you yeah. know, comedy fans don't come and go. Gosh, I hope he talks about <laughs> how puppies feel and stuff. <laughs> and Pryor would do that. What was that joke? Is your mother home? Can I get a blowjob and stuff? Mm. It's the funniest joke in the world, and it's the saddest thing that anyone's ever mm -hmm. said. It is yeah, the saddest sad. thing, and it's just astonishing how good he is. Joan, I got to work with for a couple of years and I knew her and she was the funniest person in the world and I, one of the I, kindest. I would agree. I did an episode of Fashion Police with her and mm. just, just never stopped laughing and uh, wow, she could drop an F-bomb. I mean, how Ooh. they managed to get like 30 minutes yeah. of clean material for each episode of that, I've, uh, I've no idea. Um, but one of those, those, those comics who's 
you know, at least it occurred to me you knew her better, just as funny in real life as on mm-hmm. stage and screen. I think and, that's and why I almost chose her, because I like when people are authentically themselves off stage. Mm-hmm. She certainly was. And she had to come up through a time when she was treated so shabbily by every club and every TV show mm-hmm. in America for the mo- almost all of her career, let's be honest. Um, she was basically like drummed out of show business in the early 90s at one point and came clawing back. Mm-hmm. And when she passed, and she didn't have to pass, that was a terrible accident, mm. she had two web shows, a cable show, and a movie out. Yeah, there was- And she was 81 years old. She uh, was really kind and, and lovely off stage, And... Um, when I was working with her on TV Guide Channel, I gave her two jokes to do and she did them. And that's my proudest moment of wow. my life. So just to be clear, Joan Rivers is your number one is your number one choice for who's the best. Well, comedian. just for argument's sake, yes. Yeah. Let's just say yes. Because I was telling Sandra, I only had two experiences with her and yeah. they were the same experience. Mm-hmm. I was first was in third grade, second was in ninth grade, and they were both I was buying a water bottle and she was buying cigarettes. At Glad it wasn't the other way around. You were buying cigarettes. <laughs> Who are we talking about? Joe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think Rivers. it's extraordinary yeah. that our ages are uh, disparate, if you'll to put it kindly, and that we pick the same two comics. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Isn't it, right? Well, Joan was my second choice, actually. So, uh, yeah, a lot of Joan Rivers fans here. Joan Rivers was the mentor and role model for my choice, perhaps a surprising one to you, uh, Kathy Griffin. Mm. Uh, Kathy Griffin, what I love about her, she pokes fun at her modest place in the Hollywood hierarchy and she dishes gossip taking us behind the velvet rope she's a kick-ass comic who slaughters all the sacred cows of popular culture and she actually gave me the confidence to get back on stage you know 10 years after my disastrous stand-up debut and I and I, I retire because as a showbiz journalist myself she was talking from a maybe different perspective of sort of what goes on behind the scenes and so when I built my own sort of one-man show about what these stars I grew up idolizing I sort of really like it was very much largely inspired by Kathy Griffin I would go and watch her every single week when she was in residency at the Laugh Factory. And I just mm. learned she had such a uh, a gift and still does of making it seem like everything's made up on the spot, where you, I realise now perhaps every little pause and tick and gesture was all scripted. But uh, I'm going to um, interrupt you here yeah. for just one second. And let's say one thing. Kathy does the same thing that Joan has in one regard, and that's that they're absolutely devilish about work. Joan did mm. a set the night before she died. Wow. The night before yeah. she went in for surgery. Their drive is insane. Yeah, she did a set. Yeah. She recorded every set she did and she went over them. Kathy works harder than any comedian I know. I had dinner with her like a couple months ago. And, uh, you know, two years ago, she literally was expunged from mm-hmm. show business and mm-hmm. is now making millions of dollars in a sold out worldwide tour. And that is sheer force of will and dent of hard work on her part. It's extraordinary. I saw her on a plane. I was in the same exact shirt, which is embarrassing. (laughs) I love how you have these professional relationships. I just am situationally placed with these legends. In in 30 years when I'm dead, though, what a great story you'll have to tell. So, yeah, true. This is my first real professional. So (laughs) she was nervous. It was right after all that controversy happened. And I remember being like, is that Kathy Griffin? And then she turned around and she 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 had her head down. But it wasn't the way like a celebrity doesn't want to be. She was petrified of just like how people felt about her and I was like oh I love you and then she immediately let her guard down and then we took a selfie and I feel like she was happy that someone like liked her it mm-hmm. was weird yeah because I didn't expect her to be so nervous she was, was isolated time. after that it was right after yeah, that it was really bad 
You're listening to Who's the Best Comedian? So Emily Hagen says it's Robin Williams. Greg Proops says it's Joan Rivers. There are so many other candidates. It's time to announce the results. To explain how the survey was taken, we surveyed comedy audiences at the biggest comedy clubs in Los Angeles, London and New York. And they've come back with what we think is the definitive answer. Um, I will now announce the result in reverse order of who's the best comedian. In third place, Dave Chappelle. In second place, Eddie Murphy. And the winner of Who's the Best Comedian, according to the public vote, number one, Robin Williams. (laughs) May he rest in peace. He always left us laughing. I'd like to ask our studio guests their reaction to the top three. Oh, I'm not surprised. They're all very popular. They're all really accomplished and fabulous. Who was the second one? Eddie Murphy. Oh, yes. He's one good. Robin Williams, two Eddie Murphy, three Dave Interesting Chappelle. about Eddie Murphy because he hasn't been an active stand-up for ages. Mm. When I was on my way here, my cousin's like, oh, I just watched his um, special. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Eddie Murphy raw. Yeah. yeah. He just got into him. So I don't yeah. know if maybe people my age are like starting to discover it. Sure. Eddie Murphy. This is the cool. wonderful power of streaming and, and YouTube yeah. where yeah. The, these legends, you know, they never die. They can be sort of rediscovered and inspire the next uh, generation when did you of, do the survey? Of, of comics. Over the last three months. So uh, we're recording this in late 2019. So, uh, yeah. So uh, around the time that Dave Chappelle was. I was, was wondering uh, if it know, was before so clearly or after. He was in yeah, people's minds. Yeah. That's what I was wondering. Because so, uh, I think yeah. if you'd done it, you know, uh, 10 years ago, yeah. it would have been um, Hicks and Carlin. And prior. Mm. Uh, I'm not yeah. surprised Joan isn't on the list if you surveyed an audience of comedy clubs. I am not yeah. either. That's I'm exactly what I was going to say. The yeah. conditional thing about women. Exactly. Yeah. No one ever wanted. I still get Joan DMs. was the highest placed female comic. She finished seventh. Uh, George Carlin was fourth, by the way. Mm-hmm. You know, so was Kathy Griffin on the list at all, Sandra? Uh, unless you count my vote. No. Yes. So. <laughs> there you go. Worst Wanda uh, Sykes. And might not have the most popular taste, but I know what I like. And I hope you've liked listening to Who's the Best Comedian. Uh, please check out all the other shows in our series. We've got everything from Who's the Best Star Trek Captain to Who's the Best James Bond. So uh, check those out. Oh, Greg, do you have an opinion on those? Uh, I would say Captain Kirk. That would be your William Shatner and uh, Sean Connery. Well, yeah, sure, you might be correct on one of those, but... Uh, See, if you can you, do uh, comic in English. You can you, do a hockey uh, impression of Sean Connery. <laughs> if you listen to Who's the Best Star Trek Captain, the result may not be the best for... Captain Kirk, but uh, you know, check it out. So yeah, listen to our other episodes of Who's the Best. Please subscribe, rate and review and get in touch. We're on Twitter and Instagram. Who's the best pod? Uh, we've had such a laugh today. Um, Emily Hagen, tell us more about uh, what you're up to next. Well, I'm going to put the Katy Perry wigs to rest mm-hmm. and I'm going to try to be funnier. I've got some shows coming up and I'm producing shows now in Beverly Hills. I'm trying to do a music comedy blend. So I'm booking a lot of musical comedians and then trying to make it like um, a late show, but on stage. So I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be monthly and then... Of course, Emily Knows Everything, my podcast. So follow me at Emily Knows Everything, which we learned today. I certainly do not. (laughs) 
Let's toss it to Let's Greg. Let's toss it to Greg. <laughs> well, we have way more in common than we don't. First of all, we both picked Joan Rivers and Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. Secondly, my podcast is called The Smartest Man in the World. So, wow. <laughs> There's a reason we met. Self-deprecating as ever. Yes. Emily yes. knows everything, and I'm the smartest man in the world. Both admittedly show offs. Yeah. And, uh, you can, that's on iTunes, or, or you can go to gregproops.com and all that. I'm on Instagram. At, I think it's Proop Dog, and then Greg Proops on Twitter. <laughs> This has been Who's the Best Comedian? Thank you for listening. Who's the best? best. (laughs) This podcast has been a Right Angles production.